1904, over 100 years ago, when over 200,000 people gathered for the very first time at Times Square in New York to ring in the new year with fireworks. And it wasn't until 1907 when a man by the name of Jacob Strauss, he was a young immigrant worker, constructed the very first New Year's Eve ball that was to drop to ring in 1908. This ball weighed almost 700 pounds. It was just five feet wide in diameter, and it had a whopping 100 incandescent light bulbs on it. And when this ball was dropped and it was reached the bottom, it was set to um, complete an electronic circuit that would light up a sign and start a fireworks show signaling that the new year had come. Now, if you guys stayed up last night, you probably realized that the ball we use today is quite different. In fact, this is about the seventh version of the New York, or the New Year's Eve times ball that we've used. And this one is 12 feet wide. It weighs almost 12,000 pounds, and it has over 32,200 LEDs on it quite different than the first New Year's Eve ball used in 1907. And something that I found interesting is that it wasn't actually until 1995 that they started to lower the ball using computers and electronic winches. Before that, it was used, it was lowered by hand. Six men, a rope, and a stopwatch. Things have changed quite a bit over the year. The New Year's Eve ball has changed quite a bit over the past hundred-some years. But one thing that has not changed is how it's welcomed in to the new year. December 31st, at 11.59, it begins its descent. We know when it's going to happen, and we know that the next one is scheduled to drop on December 31st, at 11.59, 2017. And millions of people all around the world in different states and different countries will begin to count down. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And maybe if you weren't a party pooper like me last night and you stayed up until midnight, maybe with your friends or your family, you guys too started to count down to the new year. It happens every year. We know when it's scheduled to happen next. And one one thing that's interesting is that this stands in stark contrast to what we know about Christ's return. Because we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know at all when it's going to happen. In fact, there have been 45 predictions in the past of Christ's return. And right now there are four recorded predictions in the future of his return. In the years 2020, 2021, 2025, and 2057. As much as we would like to predict and maybe assume the date when Christ will return, I don't think will ever know. But it would be pretty cool if we could schedule like a second eve coming party here at church where you could bring 
your snacks and your blankets and your kids, whatever food and drink you wanted because we wouldn't have to clean up afterwards. And we together start the countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. The excitement continues to build. Five, four, three, two, one. But we don't know when it will happen. In fact, Jesus himself doesn't know. Matthew chapter 24, we're going to spend a lot of time there today if you want to turn there in your Bible. It says, however, Jesus is saying this, however, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Jesus, the Son of God, the Trinity, part of the Godhead, Jesus does not know the day or the hour. But some of us think we can make predictions of when it will happen. Well, I I don't think we'll ever be able to know the exact day or hour of Christ's return from what we read in Scripture. I do think it's possible for us to know the season of his return. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The season of his return. Verse 32 says, Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, When you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. The parable teaches us here that we're not going to know the exact day or hour, but it is possible to know the season. Just as the fig tree sprouts new leaves, it indicates the season changing to summer. When we see all these things, which we're going to look at, it can show us the season of Christ's return. Let's start in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over this world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But... The one who endures till the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end will come. I think there are seven things here in this passage that signal the season of his return. And then the first is deception. Deception. In verses 4 and 5 it says, Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many have come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and they will deceive 
many. Now, when someone deceives another person, they cause them to believe something that's not true. And I think there are a lot of things in our culture and our world today that can deceive us. But here specifically, we're talking about being deceived of spiritual truth found in Scripture. And the George Barna Group did a study in the early 2000s that I think offers a glimpse into how deceived Americans are when it comes to certain things dealing with theology. And while the study is a little old, it's a little dated, I tend to think that if the same study was done today and the numbers were updated, I don't think they would reflect a shift towards the truth. 59%, over half of Americans, don't believe in Satan. 51% believe that praying to dead saints is beneficial. 50% believe salvation is earned. It's not a gift. And 44% believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same truth. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Moving on. Verse 6. Worldwide birth pains. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with many more to come. Jesus here pointing to the worldwide tragedies and disasters. And just as a woman who's pregnant before she gives birth begins to experience contractions and birth pains signaling the coming of a new child, so these disasters and tragedies happening in our world signal the coming of our Savior. And just as a woman when she goes into labor, you still don't have the exact time and date of that child. Some of you ladies probably know it doesn't happen right away all the time. And the same is true here. These things will happen, but it still doesn't give us the exact time or day that Christ will return. But they will continue to happen. But we as Christians should be alarmed. We should still love the people around us and be on mission to tell people about Jesus. Sometimes I think we're surprised with what's happening in our world. But Jesus said it's going to happen. It's, the sinful world around us is going to continue to deteriorate. It's part of the birth pains that he's talking about. And as these worldwide tragedies and disasters continue to increase so will the persecution of our faith. Verse 9. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers. Now Jesus had already predicted some of this persecution that would happen when he met with his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 before he sent them out to do ministry. He told them that they were going to be arrested, that they were going to be flogged, they were going to be put on trial, they were going to be rejected. They knew that it was coming. And I think persecution in America is on the rise every day, but at the same time, I don't think it's nearly what some of our brothers and sisters in Christ face 
every day in different countries of the world. Persecution will happen, and it will continue to increase, but how will we respond to it? How will we respond to the persecution we face? There's a man named Polycarp, and he was a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. And he was leading a church in Smyrna, which was a city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And there was a time when that church in that city started to be persecuted. The Romans would take these people, oftentimes in front of a crowd, and they would torture them, they would persecute them, they would kill them for their faith. And there came a time when the crowd started chanting for the Romans to go get Polycarp, one of the leaders of the church. And an interesting thing is that three days prior to this, Polycarp had a dream. He had a vision that as he was laying down on his pillow, it caught fire. And he woke up and told those that were with him, He knew he was going to be burnt at the stake. And so as the Romans went out to this house to get him, he had the opportunity to flee, some of the sources say, but he didn't. He greeted them at the door and invited them in and insisted that they have a meal. And while they spent time eating, he spent time praying. Eventually they loaded him up on a donkey and took him into town in front of the crowd where he was given one last chance to renounce Christ and declare Caesar as his Lord. But he respectfully declined. And as the guards prepared to nail him to the stake, this is what he said. Leave me as I am. For the one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength to remain at the stake unmoved without being secured by nails. How will we respond to persecution? Will we stand for our Lord and Savior, or instead, will we maybe back down a little bit? Do we maybe back down a little bit when we're around certain people, certain friends? How do we stand or respond to persecution? Do we fall away? That's the next thing in verse 10. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Because when persecution increases, some people will abandon their faith because it's easier. Or maybe they want to save their life. I think Christianity has a lot of fans nowadays. In America, I don't think it's uncommon for someone to raise their hand and say they're a Christian because we're a Christian nation, maybe. But when the going gets tough, things get a little challenging, they'll fall away, they'll bail, they'll jump ship. Because it's not worth it to them. They're not willing to sacrifice anything besides their faith. Don't fall away. Next, verse 11, we see false prophets. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Now, this isn't something that just happened in biblical times. I think this is something that's continually on the rise today. 
with the internet, with TV, with radio, with books. You can't believe everything you hear preached in the name of Jesus. Because there are false prophets trying to teach false doctrine that will mislead us. They want to deceive us. Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 4 says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. These teachers, these preachers, can maybe self-deceive themselves. And maybe you've heard of uh, buffet-style Christians or cafeteria Christians where people approach the Bible like they do the buffet at King Chef. They take out the things they like, and maybe the things they don't like so much, they just leave it there and act like it's not there. Because maybe that stuff might force them to change. Maybe it's easier to be a Christian if we just leave that there. But one thing that I see interesting the past few months and, I guess, year, is that some teachers or preachers are taking something out of the Bible and twisting it and changing it into something that they want that maybe makes it easier for themselves. Or maybe that might appease other people. It's like going to the buffet getting some mac and cheese on your plate and calling it mashed potatoes and handing it out to everyone else like it's mashed potatoes. It's like taking homosexuality, as Scripture says, it's not what God wants, it's a sin, and saying that it can be a God-honoring relationship. Don't be deceived by false prophets. Next we see wickedness. Verse 12, sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. I don't think it takes much convincing to think that sin and wickedness is increasing in our world each and every day. If you flip through the news or read the news or uh, just look at the world around us, you can know that wickedness and sinful desires continue to increase around us each day. But again, how will we respond? Will we respond like Jesus did when he encountered wickedness or sinfulness in the lives of others? Or instead, will we respond with hate out of anger? The Bible, Ephesians, tells us we need to speak the truth in love. Don't bend on your convictions or what the Bible says, but stand firm and speak the truth in love as sin continues to increase around us. And last, in verse 14, we see worldwide evangelism. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission we see in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus tells his disciples, and likewise us as believers, that we need to go into all the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So these seven things, I think, mark the season of Christ's return. And what does that mean for you and I as Christians? Well, I think it means that we need to be ready. We need to be ready. 
If you skip down to verse 37, it says, When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. That's how it will be. We're going to be going to work. We're going to go to school. We're going to be going to birthday parties. We're going to go to weddings. We're going to be going on vacation. We're going to be living our life just like it's another day, just like what we expect, just like what we planned, and then it's going to happen. Because we don't know the day or the hour. Just like it was in Noah's day. Everyone was going about their life, doing their thing. They weren't expecting it. Some scholars say it hadn't rained on earth until the flood. Talk about not expecting it. We don't know the day or the hour. And I think there's a few things we can learn from Noah real quick in Genesis chapter 6, his story, starting in verse 9. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. If you continue to read there in Genesis 6, it goes on to give Noah the exact instructions on how to build the ark. How he was to take two of every animal, what he was supposed to do. It told him everything to do, but it didn't give him a deadline. You need to have this boat built by this date. No, it didn't. But, if you skip down, it says, So Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. Noah was righteous. He had fellowship. He had a relationship with God, and he was obedient. He did everything as God commanded him. Maybe a great model, a great example for us. And he was ready. He didn't know when it was going to happen. We don't know when Christ is coming, but he remained faithful to the end, and he was ready. Likewise, we as Christians, we have to be ready now because we don't know when it will happen. On December 31st, 2016, at 11.59 p.m., we knew that the New Year's Eve ball was going to drop at Times Square to ring in a new year. We knew when the ball was going to make its descent. But we don't know when Christ is going to make his descent. So we have to be ready now. And so my challenge for you as we enter a new year of 2017 is to live every day, live every second as if it's your last. Because it just might be. And what a day that will be, amen? Live every second of 2017 as if it's your last. And maybe this will help us put things into perspective. Maybe the the little scuffles and uh, arguments and fights and the things that people have done to upset us, maybe that makes them seem very insignificant because every second might be our last. Maybe it'll help shape our decisions. Were you ever caught doing something you weren't supposed to do as a kid or an adult? You knew you weren't supposed to be doing it, 
and someone walked in and they caught you. Yeah, Christ sees everything we do. But how disappointing would it be to be doing something you knew you weren't supposed to be doing when Christ came back? Maybe this will help shape our decisions. What if Christ came back and we were watching that movie, reading that book, talking like that, using those words, going to that place, doing those things? What if your Lord and Savior came back to rescue you and you were doing that? Maybe it will help shape our decisions. Live every second of 2017 as if it's your last because one day God will round up the angels. Maybe he'll call Jesus in for a really quick meeting. He'll say, son, today's the day. We're going in. And as word spreads across heaven, the excitement begins to build and the angels They lean over the rails of heaven and they look down at earth and they begin the final countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. God, we're thankful for a new year and the opportunities that you give us. We're thankful most of all for the opportunity we have of salvation through your Son. And I pray that each of us would live every second, every moment of 2017 as if it's our last. God, we don't know the day or the hour of your return. I pray we would remain faithful until the very end. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.